All right. What's up? And welcome to the very first Sketchpad episode of the With CP podcast with Common Power. My name is Maria Abando, and I'm the Community and Donor Relations Manager at Common Power. And I'm super excited to be doing this series of, of Sketchpad episodes uh, with you all to be thinking through just some of the things that, that come up in my work. I really do hate thinking through things by myself. Also, as an artist, as a visual artist, my, my sketch pad is usually a place for me to be able to draw out ideas or take a stab at whatever's fresh. And so I'm hoping to be able to apply that creative thinking here with you all today on this podcast. So let me tell you a little bit about myself. So I was born in Tacoma, Washington. My family's from Tacoma, Washington, but I am recording this podcast here today in my apartment in, in Queen Anne in Seattle. And I came to Seattle uh, first for the, the University of Washington where I was um, a first-generation college graduate in 2017 with my BS in biology. But you know, during my time at the UW, I, I really found a passion and a love for organizing through leadership, through the Office of Minority Affairs and Diversity um, and with the, the Black Student Union. And, you know, both of my identities as being both a Black and Filipino woman, you know, were really things that inspired me, especially during the time, you know, in 2012 with the Black Lives Matter movement kicking off and um, the 2016 election with Donald Trump. Uh, there were all things that really drove me to, to wanting to be a change maker and to, to wanting to be an organizer and to um, you know hopefully work towards the, the liberation of all marginalized people um, and hopefully using my skills to be able to explore intersections of identities and ideas and experiences. So after um, graduating, I got a job with a local King County campaign as a field organizer, had a little experience doing that, learned a lot from that, and then moved on to work um, at a local nonprofit, Humanities Washington, where um, I did uh, some program work and some development work and helped launch the Center for Washington Cultural Traditions. And all of that led to, to me being here today with Common Power. Um, I, I found Common Power in 2018 after being introduced to uh, David Domke by a really good friend of mine, Maiwa Aina, who was on the original leadership team. Shout out to Maiwa. And I, I came on in 2018 to serve as the, the Nevada state captain um, for, for Team Nevada. Shout out to Team Nevada as well. That first experience in 2018, registering voters um, really made me fall in love with the organization um, and made me leave my job at Humanities Washington to, to come on full-time with Common Power in 2019 as the development manager. Now, all of that was, was incredibly exciting. I, I learned a lot from that work. Uh, but but really, I hope to be someone who continues to learn and grow. And I've been able to do that so far at Common Power. 
you know, I've been able to do work in, in Florida and in Virginia and North Carolina. And I led Team Iowa in, in 2020. So shout out to Team Iowa as well. Um, but, but all of this really allowed me to put all of my passions to work about um, change making by policy, helping people um, find their power through voting um, and centering people and community building throughout that process, you know, you know, engaging with and improving our democracy together. So hopefully I'm able to bring that perspective um, into, into what I'm doing and into this podcast with you all. Um, and I'm hoping to just be able to, to talk through things that come up and things that are on my mind. And so without further ado, my very first sketch pad subject is philanthropy. I want to talk about philanthropy. Now, money isn't necessarily something that would make people super excited to discuss, but for me, it really does make sense for, for me to start here. You know, I engage in the donor space with Common Power. Um, I've it, it felt it to be a real privilege to have a role where I'm helping move and manage money um, into to places where I, I believe and the donors believe that it can make a difference. And philanthropy work, um, I know, is something that, that can truly make a difference. But I also want to start here because it's important to me and has become increasingly important over the years as well for me to continue to recognize and lift up the notion that the current philanthropic institutions and systems are thoroughly messed up. We know that there are inequitable structures uh, within these systems and institutions that have been used to um, really further people who, who have wealth and who have money and, and in so white dominant culture and supremacy. And this happens by passing down wealth and multiplying wealth within the communities who have it and often white communities. And then also in doing so, rationing and restricting it from those who traditionally don't have access, um, black people, indigenous people, um, and, and communities of color. And these are often the people as well who have been exploited in order to make that wealth. And so it's really important to start there and, and to acknowledge that. And within my role, I do seek to help decolonize wealth. And maybe that's a phrase that you've heard. It's kind of a big phrase and I can totally explain it in a moment, uh, but I really do hope to help use wealth to, to heal and to heal across our communities. I wanted to, to communicate that because it's, it's really a big deal to me. This, this isn't something that I take lightly. Um, I think throughout my uh, political learning, uh, you, you could probably recognize from the things that I say that uh, I hope are my goals in, in liberation for marginalized communities that I have uh, what I consider to be uh, progressive thinking. And so many of, um, you know, progressive thinkers have often argued that if systems are rotten, that working within them won't necessarily change anything. But 
You know, I have seen the good that our organization can do that is working within this system. You know, Common Power is funded by um, largely individual donations. Uh, and, and we still are able to have an impact. We still are able to, to you know, really do a lot of good working within these systems. Um, and so seeing that and in knowing that I have a responsibility in, in playing a part in this work and, and in this progress, I did make a choice to lean in, a very conscious choice to lean in and do the best that I can right now working um, within this field. So let me tell you a little bit more about my view so that you can understand what I mean when I'm talking about decolonizing wealth as a goal of my work. Uh, and so I wanna take you back to my, my first experience uh, that I can remember of fundraising. Maybe you have one as well. Maybe it, it looks uh, a little bit like mine in that it was, um, was something that sounded really fancy and something that was maybe a little bit scary. But my first experience fundraising came when I was actually in middle school. And I had, had started my leadership journey um, pretty early on. I was lucky to have some, some adults in my life who invested and believed in me, saw something special in me. Uh, but I, I got involved with you know, my associated student body or the leadership council in my middle school. And then there was a time when there was an electrical fire, accidental fire that, um, it burned, I, I remember, a significant portion of my middle school's library. And so I, as um, a student that was active in the, the, the leadership council, you know, was asked to speak at a fundraiser at the, the local Rotary chapter. And that was something that was super exciting to me. I was given a whole 15 minutes uh, where I was to speak and I wouldn't be able to memorize the speech. I wouldn't be able to, you know, be reading a speech. I'd have 15 minutes and a PowerPoint to convince the people in this big hall at this fancy dinner to, you know, give some of their money in support of rebuilding our school. Now, I, I remember being the youngest person there by far. Um, and I remember everything seeming incredibly fancy. Um, but I did remember that we were able to raise a significant amount of money and that I, I was praised um, and, and lifted up by the, the people around me for taking part in that fundraising. And so, I, I did learn a lot from that, and I learned something from all of the following philanthropic experiences that I had. And, and philanthropy has played a big part in my life up until now, you know, including totally funding me. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to be a beneficiary of philanthropy when I received the Costco scholarship, Costco diversity scholarship. Um, and this was a scholarship I received that allowed me to attend the University of Washington um, completely full ride. And I definitely uh, would not have been able to attend with the comfortability that I did without it. Uh, my family um, was not going to be able to support me in college. So um, this was a big, big difference maker for me. And 
what I also rem remember from this experience is that I was then asked to attend a fancy breakfast that was associated every year with the, the Costco scholarship, where the, the funders of the Costco scholarship were asked to attend um, this breakfast and recipients were asked as well. And we were sprinkled amongst the tables and um, everything once again was real fancy. And we were asked to share our experiences, you know, share our needs, share our aspirations and our goals, and really share our stories um, with, the, with the funders around us. And so again, I saw how storytelling can be a means to um, receiving funds. Um, and, and I was able to learn something from that. From there um, as well, I was able to experience similar things doing fundraising with the Black Student Union at UW. And for many years, the Black Student Union had been working to set up an endowment um, that would go towards Black students and a Black student scholarship uh, at the UW in the future. But it took us a lot of years, a lot of doing this annual fundraiser um, in order to get this endowment to get there. And I learned a lot from, from helping organize these fundraisers, you know, how to secure a band and how to um, book the caterers and, you know, how to do the invitations and set up the fancy tables. Uh, but I also learned that it, it takes money to get money. And I saw this play out again when I was asked in another fundraising experience to be a speaker as a part of um, a big capital campaign that the University of Washington threw in 2016 called Together UW, uh, where the goal was to raise $5 billion. And I was asked to speak at this, this launch of this capital, ca capital campaign. And it was at Alaska Airlines Arena at Heck Ed. And my gosh, what I remember from that is just being completely in awe of the whole production of everything and the quality of the speakers that were brought in and me thinking, my gosh, I'm so lucky to, to be a part of it. I remember being swept up in the production as they put makeup on me and attached a, a microphone to my ear and a radio to my hip and how I was ushered into this special room, you know, underneath the, the arena. And when I spoke, and I walked out, you know, kind of into the, the center of the floor and my, my, my face was projected onto this big screen. I remember thinking, my gosh, this really means something. This is gonna do a lot of good. And I hope it did. And I know that we were able to raise a lot of money from that. And when I graduated in 2017, uh, what happened, but another fundraising experience when the UW Alumni Association asked me and my peers who were likely um, just taking on a bunch of debt from <laughs> graduating from the university, uh, we, you know, we were asked by the Alumni Association, um, and, and this is commonplace, you know, to, to start giving to the UW after you graduate. And so these were experiences that shaped my idea of of philanthropy. And, you know, after I uh, did my organizing work and um, ended up at Humanities Washington, um, I continued to see how philanthropy played out. Um, 
I was able to help out and assist with the, some fund development work where there was a little bit of a need. And I was able to see the ways in which the organization was um, you know, taking real steps to try and make these practices equitable. Um, and I'm, I've also been lucky to see um, equitable philanthropy with the uh, Henry Jackson Foundation where I've been lucky um, right now to serve as um, a fellowship under the Henry Jackson Foundation. And so philanthropy has shaped my life um, in those ways and in more ways that I probably know. And they've probably shaped yours as well. But I guess what I took away from it, especially before coming into CP, it was that philanthropy is also made up of a bunch of glitzy, you know, old white people who have a lot of money and there's also these other communities that are supposed to be benefiting that are the more poor uh, black and brown people who often have to prove first that they are worthy of these funds um, before they can even get it. And then once you're a recipient of these funds, you're often asked to then give back in some way, um, whether that's in reporting, whether that's in giving time and, and testimony um, and helping raising funds back again to the, the community that supported you in the first place. Or maybe it's in asking to, to give back funds directly right after you've been a recipient of them. And so I learned it really does you know, take money to get money as well. And all of this didn't really sit right with me at first, not gonna lie. Um, and, and maybe it, it doesn't sit right with you either. But I'll tell you a thing that has really helped me out is um, actually a, a really, really great resource. And it's a book called Decolonizing Wealth. And this book is written by Edgar Villanueva, who is um, kind of a national expert on social philanthropy and has um, lots of experience in his life um, working through a lot of these issues. Um, and he's also a, a, a member of the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina. And you see that thinking and his thinkings um, play out in, in this book um, and that have really helped shape a lot of what I think about philanthropy. And, really a thing that has struck with me, if I could share it with you, is that his central argument is that the thing that ails philanthropy at its core is colonialism. That, that almost without exception, funders reinforce um, colonial ideas of division. Um, and that these are these ideas of, of us versus them. It's the, the people who have versus the have-nots. And it's often mostly white people versus the, the poor people, the needy people, urban, disadvantaged, marginalized, you know, take your pick of euphemisms for people of color. But the statistics still speak for themselves that 92% of foundation CEOs are white, that 89% of foundation boards are white, and at the time of this book, only seven to 8% of foundation funding goes specifically to people of color. This is what he writes. Philanthropy is the savior mentality in its institutional form, which instead of helping 
can sometimes actually further divide um, and, and destabilize. So what I'm hoping to do in this role is push back against that notion of division and choose connection. It's kind of a, um, a theme in the book to go with this indigenous mindset of, of connection versus division. Um, he describes it, Edgar, Edgar Villanueva um, describes it as a concept of all my relations, where we think of people as being all related and connected and that everyone is at home here as well. And so everyone has a responsibility in making things right. Everyone has a role in the process of healing, regardless of whether they caused or received more harm. And all of our suffering is mutual. And so all of our healing is mutual and all of our thriving is mutual as well. So in choosing connection and in choosing responsibility, um, as we do, as these are our values, as exemplified by the, the mindset, mojo and mobilization values of common power, um, it's our responsibility to take, some, take action and do something. And we all have a role to play. And, and I know that I need to play my part as well. And that's what makes me so excited to be able to do that part in, in decolonizing wealth in this way and thinking of it as instead of using it to divide or to um, give to the people who have not, but thinking about it as a way to connect and as a way to heal. I really appreciate a lot of the ways that common power does this. Um, you know, you can even think about it uh, in the way that we redistribute um, a wealth of civic resources in our volunteer time um, and our volunteer efforts. We know that we've got an overabundance of those progressive um, civic resources here. And so we, we send some of those resources into other places where it can be used to, to make a really big difference. And in that way, we're, we're decolonizing wealth. We are doing the work of healing and connecting across divides. Another way that CP lives this out is by hiring an incredibly diverse set of people of color. You know, those statistics about people in foundations and in boards and um, people who, who hold power um, of, of all kinds, um, whether that be, you know, able to move money or able to move volunteer resources, you know, the fact that so many of those folks um, have historically been white men, um, you know, is really a barrier to holding all of us back and, and being able to, to work together to uh, decolonize these systems. And so you'll see that one strategy in order to push back against this is by hiring um, a diverse set of staff and bringing on um, a lot more people of color and um, different diverse experiences into the decision-making processes. But I want to talk about that for a second, because while I do acknowledge how important um, that is and how, how really an amazing job Common Power has done, and I'm incredibly grateful for it. Honestly, I think our staff is so awesome. It's the best staff I've ever been able to work with. 
um, we have to remember that this is a conscious choice that Common Power is making um, and that a, a lot of other organizations are, are starting to make as they realize this. But, you know, just remembering that hiring a diverse staff isn't always enough. And that's because of organizational design. Edward, Edgar Villanueva writes that organizational design determines fundamental elements like how power is held and by whom and who makes decisions and how decisions are carried out and what the relationship of the organization is to those resources, what constitutes success, effectiveness and purpose and so on. And so even when we are hiring a diverse set of staff, we are continuing to hire them into this same organizational design. He, he goes on to write that most organizations and institutions operating in the world today, particularly those that handle money, reflect those design principles of the social architects of the industrial revolution and the scientific revolution. And they were mostly philosophers, economists, scientists, and, and statesmen working in the late 1700s through the early 1900s. And so you could guess that most of those people were almost exclusively white men, um, you know, who were privileged, but um, were also um, lifting up this idea of divisiveness at the time. And so when the philanthropic and social sector were developed in the earliest part of the 20th century, those same design elements were, were brought up of bureaucracy and competition, specialization, consolidation of power and resources, uh, you know, separation in, in lots of different ways. And so when we are continuing to subvert that design, when we are hiring lots of um, different types of people and people of color into this organizational design that is exists. And it's important to remember that diversity statistics that get held up as a sole measure of progress are an insufficient measure because we, we do need to go beyond mere representation and we need to go into expanding access to power um, and to ownership and to communities of color. And Common Power does this with the vote. And we also do that by hiring up a diverse set of staff and making sure that they're supported within this system and given opportunities to, to learn and grow, um, which is something that I'm able to benefit from greatly, especially in, in learning and growing um, in this podcast here with these very rough drafts of these ideas um, in, in uh, this sketch pad. But one more thing I wanna point out that Edgar Villanueva writes, and I, again, I cannot recommend this book enough about decolonizing wealth and indigenous wisdom to heal divides and restore balance. But he writes this about hiring diverse staff, that working with people who are different from you in a culture that is not your own, using language that isn't the way that you naturally express yourself, um, in the way that a lot of people of color that work in these predominantly white spaces have to, these challenges push the brain to expand its habitual ways of thinking and, and sharpen its performance. 
This also tends to make us particularly skilled at coalition building, specifically the ability to come together around common ground, despite differing identities. My time at Common Power and my time working, you know, with philanthropy and in the donor world has really highlighted to me that, that I have this skill as well. And it's something I've had to remind myself and kind of um, lift up amongst myself to remind myself that my voice is valuable, that I do have a perspective that is important and um, that can really be used to, to help bring light and push us forward uh, in our work. And that's what makes me super excited. I'm excited to bring the different pieces of my background forward, um, you know, to, to help people learn from them and to, to learn from each other so that we can work together in finding solutions and finding common ground and eventually get towards a more just and inclusive democracy together. So that's me and, and that's what I, I I think about philanthropy. Um, and if there's anything else that I could, you know, hope to convey that I'd want you to know, it's that if you are someone who's out there that is supporting our work at Common Power, I want you to know that your donations are really, truly part of this healing work of decolonizing wealth and of decolonizing power and working towards unity. I really do often reflect on the unity that I feel in doing this work in unity with communities that I don't necessarily belong to and in unity with, um, you know, communities in other states. And all of this, these opportunities that I have to wrestle with these ideas and to eventually try and make them better, all of it is made possible by our donors. I want to say, Thank you so much for that. And it really gives me a lot of hope for the future because it really gives me that space and gives lots of other people like me the space to imagine a different future. Okay, and so I'm not gonna do this on any of the future episodes, but um, I've got to do this now. If you do feel so inspired to, to join us um, with Common Power by making a gift, you can find our info to give at commonpower.org slash donate, commonpower.org forward slash donate. And there we have info for making gifts and you can make gifts through our 501c3 fiscal sponsor for a tax deductible option. Um, and we also have an ability online to donate directly to support our federal PAC work, which allows us to work hand in hand with candidates um, towards a just and inclusive democracy across the nation. All right, so I, I do want to make one more note, one final note. And that last note today is on reparations. Okay, so you might have noticed that throughout this episode when talking about philanthropy, I was pretty careful with my words. And I talked about decolonizing wealth and I talked about healing divides and I didn't necessarily talk about reparations. Now, the reason that I didn't say that, I just want to share with you all so I can be very clear, it's that I believe that the, the social responsibility of reparations is on the federal government. 
um, not necessarily us, individuals, or private institutions, okay? And I think it's really important for us to make that distinction and know that um, doing things to decolonize wealth and um, also reparations are all important to um, healing and moving us forward. But we have to acknowledge that so much of the damage done to Black and Indigenous people here um, begins all the way back with Manifest Destiny, with um, the taking of the land and with the, the importing unwillingly um, of humans uh, to um, who, you know, who were exploited um, and continue to uh, feel those impacts to this very day. And it's important for us to not to just think of reparations as slavery in that moment, but to think of it as um, all of the oppression and mar marginalization that uh, Black Americans have faced since then, um, is, as well as what many consider our current slavery situations with the um, mass incarceration and criminal justice system in America. So um, if we if we need to give reparations, we need to acknowledge that so much of um, the negative impacts still exist and that they must first stop. You must first be paused before we can begin that repair work that's in those reparations. And in order to repair, we have to acknowledge the origins and acknowledge that the origins were legal. And so the, the responsibility to repair is on the, the federal government, okay? And so let's just be very careful. You know, we definitely can do our part in giving and restoring for black and indigenous communities. Um, but I just like to say that we as individuals are not doing reparations, but we definitely can advocate for our federal government to do and give reparations and repair. Um, a final note on that is, you know, it, I have to add that if we do advocate for reparations, it is important for us as well to advocate for indigenous communities. Um, you know, again, acknowledging at the beginning, um, it, this land belongs to indigenous communities. And so um, that it's definitely a conversation that needs to be had along with reparations. And, you know, I, I wanna say, I don't know like what the, the best way to, to, to handle reparations is. I don't have all of the answers. Um, these are just things that I'm thinking about, but you know, something that could be helpful for you if you're looking for answers as well, is to familiarize yourself with the indigenous land back campaign. And you can do that by just doing like a search of the hashtag, hashtag land back. Um, and this, is a, this campaign is one um, where indigenous communities are seeking um, to have public lands returned back to them, beginning with Mount Rushmore, which is a sacred place. And uh, I, I want to lift that up because it is important for us to acknowledge that um, the struggles of Black communities and Indigenous communities have often been inter intertwined throughout history. And so uh, when we talk about reparations, I think it's important to discuss and advocate for both. All right. 
So this has been my first episode of Sketchpad. Um, I hope you'll be able to join me in some future opportunities to um, talk more about these ideas and some other ones. Um, and until then, I just wanna say thank you all for um, being a part of this process with me.